A veil of secrecy must be preserved, she always said. This was where William had got it from. These are sacred confidences. I am morally bound by a confessional oath. She kept all her letters locked in a cupboard, because she did not altogether trust Mr. Bagthorpe not to go rummaging about, if he ever got really desperate for an idea. Every few weeks there was a ritual called the Agony Bonfire. The closed files of letters would be brought out and ceremonial, ceremonially burned. Mrs. Bagthorpe always supervised this herself, especially if there was a high wind, when she would get nervous in case a particularly agonizing letter got blown out of the garden and fell into the wrong hands. She would not leave the bonfire until it had died right down, and even then would prod about among the ashes with a hoe to make sure there were no charred remains, particularly if Mr. Bagthorpe was hovering about at the time. She was exceedingly thorough about her problems, and took them very seriously. Once or twice Mr. Bagthorpe, during periods when he was stuck with his scripts and at a loose end, had written some bogus letters to Stella Bright with false names, and using the addresses of a film producer friend in Islington, and one in Fulham. They had been real stingers, he afterward gleefully informed the rest of the family, though he would not divulge most of the details, saying that they were too young for that sort of thing. Mrs. Bagthorpe had fallen straight into the trap, and written back as requested in the stamped addressed envelope provided. Sometimes, when he and his wife had a row, Mr. Bagthorpe would sardonically refer to this, and quote extracts from Stella Bright's replies, punctuated by scornful laughs. He had even gone so far as to write a TV script about the incident, but the BBC had turned it down. He was not downcast by this, and would boast that his script had been too hot to handle. It was easy to see why Mrs. Bagthorpe did not trust him, and kept all her letters locked up. If his mother was up in her room doing her column, Jack knew she would not be favorably inclined to receive a mysterious impression. Mrs. Fosdyke was automatically disqualified, and Grandpa by now had his head right down and looked dead to the world. The whole house was depressingly quiet, and nobody would at that moment have taken it as the haunt of genius. Jack wandered out into the garden with Zero following. He came upon Mr. Bagthorpe so suddenly that it was too late to dodge out of sight. What Mr. Bagthorpe was doing was trying to plant, single-handed, a pot-grown tree some fifteen feet high. He was trying to hold it upright and fill in the hole at the same time, without much success. "'Come and hold this,' he ordered, on catching sight of Jack, who obediently went and held the tree while Mr. Bagthorpe seized his spade and began to shovel his specially mixed soil in round it. Zero must have missed Mr. Bagthorpe's scent being out of doors, and was probably still in a mild state of shock because he wandered over and sniffed at the soil. "'Doesn't it irritate the hell out of you having that hound trailing you everywhere, trailing you round everywhere?' said Mr. Bagthorpe. "'It would me. It'd drive me to drink.' "'He likes me,' said Jack. "'It's a compliment. And I like him,' he added boldly, knowing that Zero was listening, and would soon become undermined if no one stood up for him. "'You must be joking,' said Mr. Bagthorpe. "'We've got a lot in common,' Jack said sturdily. Really? You got pudding feet and no brains and matted fur, have you? Jack was so annoyed by this that he refused to answer. He even had a sudden crazy idea that he might report Mr. Bagthorpe to the RSPCA, the Royal Society for the Pre Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, if he could get some tapes of him criticizing Zero. It could be classed as mental cruelty. Is it up straight? asked Mr. Bagthorpe deeply involved in his hole. 
Jack refused to answer this, too. In point of fact, the tree was not particularly straight, because it was too tall for Jack to handle, and Mr. Bagthorpe was treading it in all lopsided. But it seemed to Jack that if his father's tree got put in at an angle, however acute, it would be no more than justice. Nobody could expect to insult people and get them to hold trees straight as well. Mr. Bagthorpe threw down his spade and stepped back. He surveyed Jack and the tree. "'I suppose I should have had more sense than to ask you,' he said finally. At this point, Jack scented the clue for a third mysterious impression. He fixed his eyes, quite deliberately, just past his father's left ear. "'What are you looking at?' demanded Mr. Bagthorpe, and whirled about, scanning the garden. Jack was looking at a plateful of the jam tarts and scones Mrs. Fosdyke was baking. "'Look at me!' commanded Mr. Bagthorpe. Jack pretended not to hear, and held his gaze steady. This, surprisingly, unnerved Mr. Bagthorpe quite quickly. "'What's going on?' he said uneasily, and had another thorough scan round. Then, "'I don't get it. Here, give me that tree.' Jack released his grip on the tree, and it swooped down onto Mr. Bagthorpe. "'Get out of here!' Mr. Bagthorpe's face glowered through a latticework of branches and leaves, and take that hound of hell with you. Jack turned silently and walked off. It's that mutton-brained hound that's at the bottom of this, he heard Mr. Bagthorpe yelling after him. Jack broke into a run and did not stop till he was out of earshot, mainly for Zero's sake. Good boy! He stopped and patted him hard. Don't you take any notice. He's just jealous. Zero wagged his tail feebly. Jack had not intended to count this as a successful mysterious impression, till half an hour later he heard his mother and father talking in the burned-out dining room. They were in there deciding on a new color scheme. "'Suffering from delayed shock this morning,' he heard Mrs. Bagthorpe say. "'If that was delayed shock, I'm the Emperor of Siam,' came Mr. Bagthorpe's terse reply. I tell you, he was looking past my left ear like he was Joan of Arc, seeing visions or something. Jack, listening, glowed and expanded, and awarded himself an Oscar. Perhaps he was hallucinating. Mrs. Bagthorpe sounded genuinely concerned, and Jack felt half guilty. That can be a symptom of delayed shock. Oh, do be quiet about delayed shock, Mr. Bagthorpe told her. You've got it on the brain. It's clear as crystal what's happening. That boy is mooning round from morning till night with no one for company but that half-witted mongrel of his, and he's beginning to get like him. It's a perfectly well-recognized and authenticated phenomenon. You've heard about people growing like their dogs, for heaven's sake. Don't be silly, returned his wife. It's quite ridiculous the way you go on about that dog. As a matter of fact, I rather like him. Jack did not wait to hear what followed. Mr. Bagthorpe was still spluttering, and Jack could not wait to get back to his room and tell Zero, in all honesty, that Mrs. Bagthorpe liked him as well. Do you hear? She likes you. Good old Zero. Zero thumped his tail once or twice, and Jack was delighted, and thought, So, now there's only the actual vision to go. To put things on a business-like footing, he took out his loose-leaf notebook and wrote, Mission accomplished, after Create Mysterious Impressions. He then listed them as, by accident, well, number one, by accident at breakfast, but thought to be delayed shock. Number two, on Grandma, while Rosie was doing her portrait, which unfortunately got spoiled. Three, 
on father, I'm glad to say, while he was planting his rotten lopsided tree. He put the book back among the pile of comics, and spent the rest of the time till tea rereading some back numbers. Everyone had gathered in the kitchen for tea, in a state of what seemed uneasy truce. Jack guessed that what had brought them all together was not so much the desire for a brisk and lively interchange of ideas, as the delicious scent of Mrs. Fosdyke's cooking, which had been invading the house and garden all afternoon. Even Mr. Bagthorpe conceded that Mrs. Fosdyke did not cook like a hedgehog. Three people present had also missed lunch, of course. Rosie was still evidently blaming was evidently still blaming Jack for the ruination of her second birthday portrait, and pulled truly horrible faces whenever he looked at her. These he did not return, partly because he felt that he was too old to be caught doing this, and partly because he recognized that he had, albeit in a roundabout and quite unintentional way, brought about the catastrophe. He resolved that on some future occasion he would make it up to her, either by buying her an ice cream, or letting, him, letting her borrow his microscope, which as a rule he would lend to no one, even when bribed. Conversation, to begin with, was sporadic, and Jack decided to wait until it warmed up before coming out with his lavender man-bearing tidings. Had he known, of course, that things were to warm up to the point where nobody would be able to hear a word anyone else was saying, his strategy might have been different. It started innocently enough, with Tess announcing as she reached for her third buttered scone that she might give up judo and take up yoga instead. Bit tactless, isn't it? inquired Mr. Bagthorpe, tactlessly. Why is it? I should hardly have thought, he replied, that it needed to be spelled out. I should have thought you might have left the monopoly of yoga to your mother. I don't see why, Tess said. I don't see why we can't both do it. All right, I'll spell it out, said Mr. Bagthorpe, if that's the way you want it. The way your mother does her yoga, she looks like someone doing an impression of a dinosaur emerging from the primeval mud. There was a silence. Someone will have to come with me to have it fitted, said Grandpa suddenly, obviously finishing a train of thought he had started in his head. If you took any form of physical exercise yourself, said Mrs. Bagthorpe distantly, you would be in a position to make that kind of criticism, though even then there are those who would think it not only uncalled for, but unkind. 